0: I feel like it's been ages since we last spoke.
1: It has actually, and it's been a crazy couple of weeks since we last spoke. So when last we spoke, it was about looking ahead to the vice presidential debate. Doesn't that feel like a I lifetime know, ago? I know. We've had so much happen since.
0: This is like the calm before the storm. I, I just really don't know what to do with myself or what to concentrate
1: on. It's kind of the storm before the storm, Jackie. Let's be honest, because we've had a president hospitalized, raucous, aggressive debates, and a fly landing on Mike Pence's head. It has been an insane few weeks, and more craziness <laughs> to come, no doubt. From RTE News, this is States of Mind.
2: This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down. You won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. In 47 months, I've done more than you've done in 47 years, Joe. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a train wreck.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the
0: best is yet to Your U.S. election 2020 podcast
1: With Brian O'Donovan in Washington
0: And Jackie Fox in Dublin Today
2: I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it This was a blessing in disguise I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women And um, everybody, I'll just give you a big fat kiss But it's it's highly unlikely that the Republicans will be able to take over Given the nationwide support for the uh, Democrats this year On the part of Donald Trump, how many empty chairs
0: are going to be around the dinner table tonight? Um, where is it? Can I play this? Actually,
1: hold on. Guess who's back?
0: Guess who? In five, four,
1: three, two, one.
0: <laughs> Where does it come in in the song?
1: I'm j- thinking the same thing as that.
0: No, it's the top. It's the top.
1: Oh, no, it's not. it's
0: not. Oh, I haven't seen this music video in so long. Hold on. Oh, here it comes. No, this is it. Back, Brian. It's not Slim Shady.
1: Guess who's back? (laughs) Slim Shady. No, I wouldn't call him Slim Shady. He is fond of the M and M's, though. Um, Yeah, I think we just waited for a minute. Bang. Yeah,
0: we just waited a whole minute to get to that point. I'm just going to turn this down. Yeah, (laughs) Donald Trump is back with a bang. Back campaigning in Florida. Hello, Sanford. It's great to be with you. Thank you. It's great to be back.
1: That's right. So no sooner did he get his all clear from his doctor. Well, we think he got his all clear. We'll talk about that in a moment. The messaging from the doctors has been very vague on Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's health. But yes, post-COVID-19 treatment, back on the campaign stage this week, back on the rally stage, addressing supporters in Florida, Jackie, and earlier this week telling them that he was going to run through the crowd and start kissing members of the audience.
2: One thing with me, the nice part... I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and um, everybody. I'll just give you a big fat kiss.
0: So unless you have been living under a rock, it has been a long fortnight in the world of Donald Trump diagnosed with COVID-19 in Walter Reed Hospital for treatment, then back on the campaign trail. And you were there in the middle of the madness, Brian.
1: Yeah, it was a madness is the word. It was a crazy couple of weeks. So we had his diagnosis, his announcement of his COVID-19 positive test early on a Friday morning. That afternoon, myself and my cameraman Murray were outside the White House doing a live into the nine o'clock news And all these police came and started clearing the green in front of the White House, moving everybody off. There was this sense of panic. We knew he had been diagnosed. We didn't know what was happening. and It was only a little bit later that they announced he was going to be taken to hospital. So we waited outside. The White House, as the presidential helicopter, Marine One, landed on the South Lawn. And it was one of those very surreal strange moments we have them all in our journalism careers Mm -hmm. where you go oh this is going to be a reeling in the years moment you know one of those Mm -hmm. and this was definitely one of them you were watching the president of the united states being taken away by helicopter to hospital the setting sun glinting off the side of marine one as he pivots away from the white house for the uh, short flight to bethesda and the walter reed national military medical center Incredible sight to see and again incredible and there was a lot of members of the public lot of media all gathered outside the white house and it was interesting to speak to the people who had gathered yeah. there a sense jackie that regardless of your politics people were kind of worried they were kind of concerned whatever else you think about donald trump nobody likes to see somebody sick nobody likes to see someone being taken to hospital a sense of worry and a sense from some people of you know maybe this will bring a bit of unity and a bit of uh togetherness in a very divided america but, you know, what happened of the following days, nobody could have predicted.
0: Yeah, I was watching it on that Friday night. I was kind of flicking between the Late Late Show and CNN because it was quite late Irish time when the news broke. It was that, as you said, that kind of reeling in the years moment. Where were you when you heard that Donald Trump was diagnosed with COVID-19? But like, set the scene for us during that moment, Brian, because what was it like being outside that medical centre? I'd say there was a lot of emotions going around.
1: Yeah, so Walter Reed Medical Center is in Bethesda, Maryland, which is just outside Washington, D.C. You're practically in Washington. You just go over the border from Washington into Maryland, and then you hit the Walter Reed Medical Facility, which is mainly a military hospital, but obviously it's the hospital where the presidents of the United States get their checkups and the hospital that they're taken to if they are ill. And it is this fabulous facility on this massive campus. It looks like a university campus, Mm. not a hospital. Huge green areas around it. The central building is this, you probably saw it on the news. We watched it closely for those few days. This very tall tower, kind of art deco, 1930s look. It reminded me of something from Gotham City, kind of a Batman (laughs) vibe going on with these big gold doors. And the huge gold doors swing open and the doctors, the team of doctors would... Descend the steps and give their update on the president's health. And I mentioned this earlier the updates on the president's health were very confusing and very limited in the information. And they would ignore fundamental questions like when was his last negative test? And what is his temperature like? And if his temperature has fallen, is it because he is on fever reducing medication? And they would ask questions about was he put on oxygen? And getting these very vague answers. And then we had one incident on the Saturday, the sort of the first full day, if you will, where he was in hospital.
2: Morning, everyone. Uh, Dr. Sean Connolly, physician to the president.
1: Where the doctors gave an update saying
2: At this time, the team and I are extremely happy with the progress the president has made. Thursday, he had a mild cough and some nasal congestion and fatigue, all of which are now resolving and
1: improving very positive, very rosy, everything's great. But then the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, pulled journalists aside and you could see him pulling the journalists aside and gave this sort of off-the-record anonymous briefing where he painted this far graver picture of the president's health and said that things had been quite serious. So it was a weekend of confusing messages and a weekend of conflicting messages. And then, before the president left, the weirdest confusing message of all came from the president himself when he got into his car This big presidential motorcade left the hospital while he was still sick and drove past his supporters to wave at them out the window to thank them for coming out in their great numbers.
0: The motorcade then did a a U-turn at the bottom of the road there uh, and they drove back and Donald Trump drove just a couple of metres from where I'm standing now uh, and waved to us, uh, wearing a face mask, an extraordinary event. You couldn't write it. I mean, what happened over the last couple of weeks, you know, it's brought up a number of issues The first, it showed how Donald Trump is really clutching at straws to get a treatment or a vaccine approved. He has been longing for a miracle or just science to overshadow the over 200,000 US deaths to COVID-19. And President Trump has been looking for a cure for the virus for months, initially seizing on hydro... I can never say this word... Hydroxychloroquine.
1: Hydroxychloroquine. 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 You know when you see it and you're like, how on earth
0: do I pronounce that? Yeah, Yeah, and he was looking at that as an answer to, as as a treatment for COVID-19 before health experts raised concerns about its use. Now it's something else after this.
1: Yeah, and we saw this evolution, I felt, of Donald Trump. Sorry, let me correct that. We thought there was an evolution in terms of his COVID-19 feelings, his approach to the virus, When he was sick and in hospital, he sent out a tweet one of the first nights saying, I now understand it. I now get it. And we thought, OK, he is going to come out a changed Donald Trump, a full understanding of the gravity and the seriousness of this virus that has claimed more than 200,000 lives in the US alone. But then the following night, before he was released from hospital, he tweeted this thing saying, uh, I've had it. I'm getting better. I can beat it. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of this. We can beat it. And then, as we know, when he emerged from hospital, it became all about this conquering message. I defeated the virus. I'm better than this. Don't be afraid of it. We can defeat this together. So this message that we thought would be of caution and seriousness, and I get the virus now, became this triumph. I'm the victor here. I'm the conqueror. I got it. But now I'm immune. Now I'm better. Now nothing can stop me. The problem with this, Jackie, is this tough man image of I've beaten this virus and now I'm going to go out and hold a whole load of rallies again and I'm going to pack a whole load of people into these arenas and into these airport hangars in violation of local authority guidance. Mm. Who does that appeal to? That appeals to his base. His base, 35, 40% of the electorate. But that's fine. He doesn't need to appeal to them. He has them in the bag already. Mm. He needs to appeal to the moderate swing voters in the swing states, the... Suburban women, the blue-collar workers and the Rust belts who backed him the last time and are unsure about backing him again. And many of them don't like his coronavirus response. And polling shows that his biggest problem is the coronavirus and his coronavirus response. So this tough-man attitude of, now I'm invincible, now I'm immune, none of you have anything to fear come out in your numbers, let's get back to normal life. That will not play well with the people he needs to win over if he's to retain Mm. the White House.
0: Another element to this, which I thought was extremely stark, was how Donald Trump having COVID-19 highlighted that divide even further. This is not about the well wishes or the hopes about whether or not he gets better. But when the news broke that President Trump had COVID-19, there was an air of scepticism about the news, questions over... Did he really have it? And I think there are still questions there. I think this really showed how the trust is fractured between people, not all, and the administration when they don't know whether to believe what the president of the United States says, along with his team.
1: Yeah, and the problem there was, it comes back to this confusing messages from the doctors refusing to say when he got his first, when his last negative test was prior to testing positive. And why is that significant? That would have told us when he got this illness. And it was never very clear. And that adds to the conspiracy theories of either A, he's had it for ages and hasn't told anybody, or B, he doesn't have it at all and he's making it up, which of course I'm sure wasn't true. But it led to this suggestion that maybe he did have it a little bit longer and maybe he wasn't telling us. Or maybe he wasn't being tested as regularly as the White House said he was going to be tested. What it highlighted once again was, of course, that the medical systems, the safety protocols in the White House were lax because the White House itself became this super spreader. He hosted these big events. He hosted this event to unveil Judge Amy Coney Barrett. That became a super spreader event in the White House lawn. The following day, he met with Gold Star Families. There was a fear that, you know, he could have spread it there as well. So a real sense that the precautions weren't being taken. It resulted in the president himself getting sick. And yes, as you say, big questions still unanswered about exactly when, how, why and Mm -hmm. the timeline to all of this.
0: You were talking about his base there because there was a sense, too, that he was campaigning during his hospitalisation, appealing to some of that base. I say this because... When he did those online videos that we saw, he described getting COVID-19 as a blessing from God. Hi, perhaps you recognise me. It's your favourite president.
2: I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. I caught it. I heard about this drug. I said, let me take it. It was my suggestion. I said, let me take it. And it was incredible the way it worked.
1: Incredible.
0: But while he tried to rein in some religious support, he pushed one group away, the military.
1: Yeah, I mentioned there that, so if you can imagine the weekend's events were on the Saturday, he held this event to unveil Judge Coney Barrett and there was a sense that that was the super spreader event. Then on the Sunday, he hosted this event in the White House for what is called Gold Star Families. These are the families of members of the military who've lost their lives. And there was a sense that if he knew he was sick then, or maybe he didn't know, but he was, he could have infected these poor families that had come to the White House, that had invited them. But then Donald Trump did the bizarre thing where he sort of almost blamed that event, the Gold Star family event. He said, oh, maybe I got it from them because they were all mad to come up and hug me and kiss me and maybe I caught it from them. I mean, not a good look really to start blaming families who've lost loved ones in the military. And it kind of was the continuation of a pattern. Donald Trump was very damaged earlier this summer by this article in the Atlantic magazine, if you recall, where there was reports that he called dead soldiers losers and suckers. And to be honest, this almost blaming of these families of fallen military really, really didn't help matters either.
0: Gosh, the whole thing was just another twist and turn in this presidential election that nobody was expecting. Will the overall coronavirus crisis spell triumph or disaster for Donald Trump? I suppose we'll just find out in a couple of weeks. It's a two for one kind of deal on States of Mind this week because, yes, the presidential election steals all the major headlines. But on November 3rd, there are other elections happening in the United States and those results could have a serious impact on whoever gets to that Oval Office. Whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden who wins the election, who makes up Congress will shape what exactly they can accomplish.
1: Yeah, of course, all the focus, understandably, internationally anyway, on November 3rd will be on the presidential election and rightfully so. But yeah, there's loads of other people on the ballot and there's a wonderful expression here in the US. People say, vote for everybody on the ballot from president right down to the dog catcher. And that's often (laughs) what you have in these local communities. You could have the local sheriff, you could have the local town council, you could have the school warden, whoever. They're all being voted in. Judges are voted in on a very local level. So some areas will have these massive long ballot papers, literally starting with the president at the top and ending with the dog catcher at the bottom. And the bit we're going to... Focus today, I suppose, is the bit in the middle the congressmen and women and the senators, because this is a key election and a big chunk of those votes up for grabs on November 3rd. And that, of course, of course, have a huge impact on whoever wins the White House because they have to be able to deal with Congress.
0: A quick refresher on Congress before we continue on we will build on the basics as usual. Congress, it's part of the US federal government that makes laws. It is made up of two chambers called the House of Representatives and the Senate and all members are elected by the people. Meeting on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., members make laws and share power with the President and the Supreme Court.
1: That's right, and thousands of bills are put forward for their approval every year with a massive range of topics. You could have gun control, the federal budget. I mean, many would say that, yes, all the focus is on the president, but Congress has the real power because they control the purse strings, they control the money. They have to pass the spending bills and the tax bills. I've been very privileged and very lucky to be up on Capitol Hill many, many times myself over the last few years. A couple of Irish bills have been voted on, Irish-related issues. Uh, Last year there was a bill to reinforce support for the Good Friday Agreement We also had legislation passed in relation to E3 visas. Do you remember those, Jackie? They were in the news all the while there. This visa that was available to Australians. And then maybe uh, they were going to expand it to Ireland. A distant memory. And that was an interesting example, though, of how Congress worked. What used to happen there was uh, the House of Representatives passed it. But then it got scuppered in the Senate. And that was a very particular type of bill that required a unanimous support in the Senate. It needed all the senators to back it. And just one senator on one occasion said, I am not going to back this. And the whole thing fell. So you've got all these different bills. And it's very interesting to see how the different chambers work. So I suppose first off, let's look at the lower chamber, if you will. The House of Representatives, the number of representatives there is per state and based on the population of that state. And along with powers to start bills relating to revenue, the House of Representatives can also cause a lot of trouble for the president. They can investigate it. As we know, they can investigate a president and they can make life very difficult for a president if they want to. And we've seen that very much so in recent years. The most clear example, of course, being the impeachment trial of US President Donald Trump last year.
2: On this vote, the yeas are 229, the nays are 198, present is one, Article 2 is adopted. And once again, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, warning members uh,
1: not to react, but there she gets a, uh, a hug at, at the end of a very emotional day. President Trump has now been impeached on both counts on both articles of impeachment.
0: Whereas the Senate, it likes to see itself on a higher pedestal as the upper chamber of Congress with 100 members. Senators, they have the power to approve treaties, confirm major government roles, including the Supreme Court, like we see with Amy Coney Barrett recently. Also cabinet positions and ambassadors. And they conduct the trials of those impeached by the House.
1: Yeah, and then each state, no matter what their population is, is represented by two senators. So every state gets their two senators, and then the vice president of the United States is seen as the president of the Senate, and he can cast, or she, can cast a deciding vote in a case where the Senate is deadlocked and it's a 50-50 split on a vote. But things are more complicated when it comes to the election of senators. They don't come up for re-election every two years like the congressmen and congresswomen. Instead, they serve six-year terms in office... But they are then staggered. So every two years, around one third of the Senate is up for re-election.
0: So the party which wins the majority in the Senate and the House of Representatives, they will dictate the policies the president can pass on what we've talked about, issues from health care to taxes. And they also play a part on who the president can put in the federal courts. So what's the state of play at the moment, Brian?
1: So right now, it looks like the Democrats will hold on to the House of Representatives. They got a majority in the House after the midterm elections in 2018. I was here in Washington covering those elections in 2018. And of course, they were a huge story then because you didn't have a presidential election on the ballot at that stage. All the focus was on Congress, all the focus on the Senate, all the focus on the House of Representatives. And yeah, the Democrats won the House and they looks like they're going to keep it. And that makes life... As we mentioned, quite difficult for a president if the president is from the opposing party. They can block bills, they can investigate, they can start impeachment proceedings. But it also leads to rows and it leads to deadlocks. We've seen government shutdowns where they haven't been able to agree a federal budget. And right now we're seeing a big deadlock on Capitol Hill, a row between the president, the executive branch and members of Congress overpassing a COVID-19 relief bill that would give some relief to those suffering in the pandemic.
0: Whereas in the Senate, the Republican Party holds a 53-47 advantage in the Senate and Republicans have to defend 23 seats this year compared with only 12 for the Democrats in the Senate. To gain control of the Senate, the Democrats need to flip at least three seats if Joe Biden wins or four if he loses to get a say. And if either party has 50 seats at the end of the election, the vice president becomes the tiebreaker vote there. And we saw how a Republican-held Senate bolstered Donald Trump's policy agendas during his first term in office.
1: Absolutely. They were crucial for him. Number one, they saved his skin, if you will, on the impeachment front. Remember, he was impeached by the House of Representatives, but then you go on trial in the Senate, and he was cleared by the senators where the Republicans had the majority.
2: President of the United States is not guilty as charged. The Senate, sitting as a court of impeachment, stands adjourned, sine die.
1: Another big factor with the Senate is the passing of Supreme Court justices, their confirmation. Donald Trump already has two in the bag and he's currently in the process of getting his third over the line. And it looks like Mm -hmm. once again, the Republicans have the numbers and they will confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett as the next Supreme Court justice.
0: Okay, so there are a lot of races happening. Um, So let's go to a guy who knows all about them and see which ones we should be looking out for in this election.
1: We're joined now on the line by Professor Mark Rome, Associate Professor of Government and Public Policy at Georgetown University here in Washington. Professor Rome, thank you for joining us. Mark, I spoke to you in your office December last year, and we did this look-ahead piece to what 2020... (laughs) (laughs) We did a look-ahead to what 2020 would look like. My goodness me, Who could have predicted it? Before we go into the details of what's ahead in terms of the election, look back politically, if you will, for me on 2020. I mean, it's a year that was utterly dominated by the virus,
2: was it not? And it just upended everything. And it's going to dominate through the election, both in terms of the issues that voters care about. It's like, which party, which candidates do we trust more in handling the pandemic? But it's also going to have a big impact on how the election is going to be run. There's going to be a massive increase in mail voting, there's going to be difficulties in doing some in-person voting because of the the shortage of polling places and the long lines that we can anticipate. So there are going to be a lot of complications with the way the election is actually administered this year. Can, the pandemic, that's, that's going to be the big issue.
1: Just in terms of the overall picture on the presidential front, I mean, the polls are all telling us Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. Are you being swayed by that? Do you think it's going to be this Biden victory or is it too soon to write Donald Trump off, we still have three weeks to go to election day.
2: You know, it may be too early to make my predictions the day after the election, given the uncertainty we have on how votes are going to be counted. You know, all the polls look like they're going to be going for Joe Biden. It's very strong and very consistent. Now, it's possible the polls will get it wrong. Uh, I think it's less likely. Pollsters make their money by being accurate when they are wrong is a lot of the state polls were wrong in uh, 2016 that looks bad for them so they adjust their ways of collecting data also i think that the sort of this phenomenon of the shy trump voter the, the trump supporter who is unwilling to say that to a pollster that may have been true in 2016 it's just not going to be true in 2020 trump supporters are very vocal in their support of him they're very open about that You know, perhaps a few would lie to the pollsters, but I don't think generally it's going to be a problem. I think the polls are going to probably get it right this year. Of course, I say probably and not Mm. certainly.
0: Mark, if we can go to the other big elections that are happening, sometimes they're overshadowed by the dramatic presidential election this year, the congressional elections. Let's go to the House of Representatives first. What are the polls saying and what races should we look out for over the next couple of weeks?
2: So one thing that is, I think, regrettable about the American system of democracy is that most of our members of Congress, the House of Representatives, uh, 400 plus, they live in what are considered to be safe districts, that is districts that are solidly Republican or solidly Democrat. So if we think of the uh, you know, 400 plus elections for the House of Representatives this year, only about 20 of them are seen in doubt. That's a very small number. Uh, the Democrats... Are doing very well nationally in the polling. They've got about a seven point advantage over the Republicans. It looks like they may pick up a couple seats in the House, not certainly, but it's it's highly unlikely that the Republicans will be able to take over given the nationwide support for the uh, for the Democrats this year.
0: I suppose then the eyes kind of turn to the Senate uh, because there's a lot more face offs uh, in that and a lot more at play.
2: That's that's right. That's right. And the Senate is important for several reasons uh, the, the main one is that it is in doubt there are a lot more republicans defending seats than there are democrats defending seats and control of the senate will be pivotal pivotal next year so we can imagine three different scenarios one biden is elected president but the republicans maintain the senate that will stall biden's agenda two the republicans maintain control of the senate and trump is reelected that will give the republican party extraordinary power over the next 4 years it's also possible, although unlikely, that Trump is reelected and the Democrats take over the Senate. And if that's the case, you can imagine that Trump's going to have a very difficult time getting anything through the Senate. And there'll be constant investigations of administration for the next four years.
1: There's some big names on the ballot from a Senate perspective. I'm thinking of the majority leader, um, Mitch McConnell, and various other big name senators Who could we see falling here? Who is in trouble? Are there household names that we could see losing their Senate
2: seats? Uh, it It looks pretty likely that the Democrats are going to pick up a couple Republican seats. One is going to be in Maine. Susan Collins looks like a dead person walking there. She's not been able to generate sufficient support from the Republicans because she has been wary of Trump but she hasn't come out against Trump. And so the Democrats have no reason to support her either. So it's likely that she's going to lose. will be a, a Democratic pickup there. Sarah Gideon's the Democratic candidate, and it's highly likely that she's going to win. The other ones, uh, the other states I'll just mention real quickly, is in Colorado. Cory Gardner is the Republican incumbent. It looks like former Governor John Hickenlooper has a very strong chance of beating him. And then one seat in. Uh, In Arizona, Martha McSally is the Republican. She looks like she's going to lose to Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly's had a very, very prominent national profile, has raised many, many millions of dollars, and he looks like a very strong bet to win in that state.
1: So the numbers you've given there, the numbers are so tight in the Senate. I mean, maybe talk us through where we are right now in terms of Republican, Democrat. It's only a handful of votes that could utterly switch the balance. So we could very much be looking at
2: a Democratic Senate post this election. You know, It's too close to call right now. Most of the polls suggest that it's likely that the Democrats will pick up a 50 or 51 seats. 51 seat would give them a majority and give them extensive power. 50 seats would be enough if Joe Biden wins the presidency. If there's a tie in the Senate, the vice president casts the deciding vote. If Biden wins, that will be a Democratic vice president. But it's, you know, it's 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 really hard to tell. The Democrats could pick up three or four more seats. They could win in South Carolina, Georgia and Iowa, for example. They could win in North Carolina. So it's possible there would be 53 or 54 Democrats in the Senate. But we don't know until the votes are cast and they are counted. The Republicans could hold on.
0: What about the type of people running for each party, Uh are we seeing more divisive figures running after the election of Donald Trump? I say that, you know, for instance, we have Majory Taylor Greene, a controversial Georgia Republican, Republican congressional candidate who promotes the QAnon conspiracy theory.
2: So the strategy of Republican candidates this year, by and large, has been to run towards Trump, uh, try to have Trump hold their hands and pull them over the finish line. There's been no Advantage, really, for Republicans anywhere to disavow Trump, his policies or his persona. So, yeah, you're getting more extreme Republican candidates, extreme in the sense that they reject the principles of the Republican Party for the last century, for example, for matters of free trade and small government. And they're willing to embrace anything that President Trump has suggested. Now, on the Democrat side, you have not seen a huge surge, at least at the Senate level, towards the more. Uh, extreme liberal positions of the democratic party the strong democratic candidates by and large are seen as fairly moderate and that's their strategy they want to be able to pick up the democrat votes but also the votes of the independents and perhaps some disaffected republicans so yes the the senate's likely to be highly polarized along party lines but it's not that the democrats are necessarily moving far to the left although it appears that the republicans may be moving yet further to the right
0: We saw more women running during the midterm elections in 2018. Is that the same for 2020? You know, more women, more people of colour running?
2: There are more women running in 2020 than 2016. One thing that's notable is there are a fair number of of, uh, female Republican candidates. The Republican Party has worked hard to diversify its candidates, at least in terms of their sex, if not in terms of their ethnicity. So we can expect a good year for women. Now, the evidence is pretty clear that the main reason that there are fewer women in uh, national positions in in the Congress is that fewer women traditionally have run. When women run, if they are solid candidates, they're able to raise money and they're able to compete effectively. So we are going to continue seeing more um, more females. Notice that a couple of the most prominent Senate races like in Iowa, Joni Ernst, female Republican incumbent. Her challenger, Teresa Greenfield, female Democrat in Maine. Again, it's Susan Collins versus Sarah Gideon. So there are a number of women against women matches in the Senate. So we're going to have uh, we're going to have some women senators in uh, 2020.
1: Mark, that's excellent. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, and take care now.
0: Have a great day. Bye. That was great. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thanks, now. Yep.
0: Brian, we should have been talking about another debate this week, but it just shows you you don't really know what to expect these days.
1: No, you don't. Uh, We should have had debate number two from the president's presidential candidates, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, due to face off this week in Miami, Florida. But it was cancelled? Well, it was rather messy, actually. Initially, the Debates Commission came out and said, let's move this thing virtual, guys, because one of you has tested positive for COVID-19. Donald Trump said, I'll be having none of it. We'll have it in person, face to face, or we won't do it at all. And the Debates Commission called his bluff and said okay then no debate and then kind of the trump campaign came back and said wait wait wait, wait, we might do it later in the month and the biden campaign said no as of now it looks like there is now just one presidential debate that one is still going ahead but who knows
0: yeah well yeah we believe
1: so but this keeps chopping and changing so um you know hopefully because they're entertaining and they're very interesting um donald trump really looking back on the polls We all felt he didn't do a particularly good job. He was far too aggressive in interrupting of Joe Biden. He, of course, portrayed it as a wonderful job. But polling done afterwards, Jackie, showed that a majority of voters felt he hadn't done a good job on the debate stage and had been too interrupting. So it'll be very interesting to see if they do have one more debate before election day, if the tone of Donald Trump will change? Or will Slim Shady, now that he's back, be just as uh, aggressive as ever? We'll, we'll, We'll just have to wait and see.
0: Well, as we know, a week is a very long time in politics and a US presidential election. So who knows what we'll be talking about next week. Chat to you then, Brian.
1: Chat to you then, Jackie. Thank you.